This is episode number 91 and today we're going to talk about why top players win more and maybe try to find out what you can copy from their behaviors and what you should look for in order to replicate the results. But before we go into that, I would like to thank my sponsors, that's mtgazon.com and patrons. I would like to greet three new patrons uh, and that is Mario and that is Mario, Reese, and uh, Gregorado. So thank you very much for joining the, uh, the happy bunch of people that uh, support me. And uh, yeah, it goes quite a long way to uh, support my content because it keeps my wife happy, keeps me motivated, multiple tasks achieved at the same time. Um, and you also can get some benefits like getting to ask questions about, um, uh, about uh, whatever interests you during the episode if you are in the right tier. But before we move to the main topic, I would like to start with a preamble. You know, streaming and content creation is this game when you try to get as much as possible for yourself. But somehow I hear that a lot, but I never see that in uh, limited content creation when most people that do create are quite closely related. They interact, they get inspired by each other. So I would like to use one of my preambles because I, why shouldn't I to showcase my favorite content creator in limited and that is Corner Calls because you should recognize greatness. And I think Cord is amazing in multiple ways. And I wanted to make a strong case for why you should listen to Cord, why you should support them, why you should um, interact. So first of all, Alex is a very good communicator. I listen to his podcast every week and every single time I am amazed by how easily he can communicate complex problems uh, that makes his content accessible for players of every single um, level of uh, ability. If you are a seasoned grinder, you will still find something in his content easily. But if you are just a beginner in Limited, you will still get quite a lot because it's communicated in such an intuitive way. Uh, second of all, Alex is a very good gameplay tutor. Uh, if you watch his streams, then you will see very easily how not to make mistakes. He will walk you through in a way that is also accessible to everyone. And he's just a generally nice, sweet person, which is nice to know uh, from your content creator. So um, I that's one of the few Twitch streamers I watch very regularly, and there's a very good reason for that. So um, my preamble is give some more love to Corticals because he's amazing, and uh, we're happy to have him as a person that creates content in our neck of the woods in terms of magic. We can start uh, talking about the main topic, uh, but before that, I usually talk a bit about the metagame evolution, and that is how the metagame of the game of, of, of Limited has changed from last week to, to now. You have the red bars. Uh, this is the frequency of the gameplay of each archetype. Red bars are the week one, and uh, blue bars are almost week two because we still don't have two weeks on, uh, on the clock. But what you can see is that Ragdos and Golgari were the most played decks at around 16%. But um, across the first week, or after the first week, um, the rate of playing Boros has increased from 11% to almost 14%. So that's a big shift. And also we've seen a shift in how red cards are being picked slightly higher, uh, which makes me think that there might be a slight drop of, of uh, win rate of Golgari in the coming weeks because people realize how good it is and are starting to draft it more heavy. In terms of Ragdos and Golgari, there were cosmetic changes really, 
under one percentage point. There has been also a bit more Gruel drafting, uh, it was at 9.8, now it's at 10.4. Not a big change, but um, change nonetheless. Uh, people stopped drafting Selesnya as often, uh, dropped from 8.7 to 7.6. Very small changes with Izzet, Demir. Um, Izzet is around 8%, Demir is around 9%. Slight drop off for Orzov players from 9.5 to 8.4. And uh, Simic and Azorius are uh, way behind um, at around 55 5. 5.5% uh, of uh, gameplay, slight drops for those, but also uh, in the cosmetic department. Uh, in terms of the win rates, uh, first week, uh, the two most winning decks was Boros and Raktos uh, at around 57 and a half. And both of them dropped by roughly a percentage points to 56.6, 56.3. Um, then uh, Golgari was the third uh, highest win rate deck with 56.5. That dropped to 56. Uh, again, not massive changes. Um, uh, and Gruul stayed at uh, 56.2 that it had last week, actually overtaking um, uh, overtaking Golgari. But that also means that um, in week two, difference between number one Boros and number um, four Golgari was only 0.6 percentage points in terms of win rate, which makes me think these decks are quite evenly matched in terms of um, uh, how you can draft them in the current metagame. So uh, you shouldn't be stuck with this idea that sometimes people get that Boros is the thing and it will win everything. I think all four of those decks are going to be very good if they're open. So stay at 10 and, uh, uh, and decide based on what is more available. And you should be fine with that rather than trying to force the most powerful deck according to the content creation. Um, messages, which would be Boros, because that's what you will be hearing, because that was the deck that was slightly surprising after week one. Important piece of there is that the difference between fourth uh, most winning archetype right now and uh, fifth is almost three percentage points, which is a chasm. So there is a big difference between this top four decks and um, and the next one, which will be for the week two, is it? at 53.4. So, you know, 56, 53.4, that's a big difference. But then you have a bunch of decks in this um, second tier, which is significantly weaker. And that will be Selesnya, Izzet, Demir, and Orzov. And these are also quite evenly matched. There's 0.4 percentage points uh, between those uh, four in terms of win rate. And um, Selesnya dropped off a bit, uh, but Izzet, uh, Demir, and Orzov increased uh, ever so slightly in terms of the win rate. And then we have Simic and Azorius that are at 40, 49-50% win rate uh, by now. And especially Simic dropped from 51.9 to 50, which is two percentage points drop. That's quite significant. So um, it seems like it was benefiting a bit from uh, certain cards, maybe like Hamlet Glatton being a bit more open in the week one than in the week two. We will be talking about the top players. So I have the same graphs that we've seen before uh, for the top players. And... Uh, you see similar trends, but slightly amplified. So if in the first week there were 16% of people drafting Ragdos and Golgari and 115 drafting Ragdos, in top player bracket, it was 17% for Ragdos and Golgari and 13% for, uh, for Boros. And Boros also increased by two percentage points to 15%. Um, Ragdos and Golgari stayed mm, the same-ish, around 17.5 or so uh, uh, percent of the uh, of the gameplay. And Gruul actually increased slightly in uh, general metagame. 
But in terms of the top players, it dropped slightly from 13 to 12.5. But it was drafted much heavier in the first week than it was in terms of, in, 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 in case of general public. So um, it dropped from 13 to 12.5. It's still more played by top players than it is by, uh, by the uh, general population of 17 lands. And a quite interesting thing is that, is it increasing popularity by quite a lot from 8.2 to 9.5? And there was a big drop off for both Orzov and Selesnya from 7.3, 7.6 to 6%. Demir stays roughly the same. Azorius is almost not drafted at 3.6%. And Simic is also declining below 5%. So um, basically the metagame for top players is very similar to the metagame for all players, but amplified in the successful decks and depleted in the decks that have lower win rate. Uh, in terms of uh, win rates, well, one thing that we see is that there was a big drop in Boros win rate uh, over the first week. So first week, it was 62.8% win rate for the top players. These people win quite a lot. And it dropped to 61.2, so 1.6 uh, percentage point drop. And there was a big drop in Ragdos from 61.5 to 59.2, so that's over 2 percentage points difference between uh, week one and week two. Also, a uh, sizable drop for Golgari from 60.9 to 59.2, uh, so just the over 1.5 percentage points. And Gruel stayed at the same level, 60.6, now it's 60.4. And also that makes it across the top players, Gruel is actually the second most winning deck after Boros, which is something interesting that you might uh, want to think about. Uh, then we have decks like is it an Orzov at around 59 for week one, and they dropped to 58 in case of is it, and to 56.5 uh, in case of Orzov, which is quite a quite a substantial drop uh, of uh, 2.5 percentage points. Selesnya also dropped. Actually, every single deck dropped. Um, the most invested players they are the best prepared for when the set launches, and that's why they win quite a lot. And they are very quickly also to notice what is the best color pair and they will go on that wagon and they will force it while it's forcible and they will have extremely high high win rates in the first week second week that's going to be um that's going to decrease because other people are catching up with that information so um uh, let's say people from the mid win rate tier in 17 lands uh, are going to uh, catch up for example but all of uh, all of the color combinations dropped by you know roughly one 1.5 percentage points so I think it's nice to see that Gruel is the one that stayed the same and, and maybe draw some conclusions from that. I would draw your attention to Gruel because I'm pretty sure that it's going to be an archetype that's not going to get a lot of um, talking about while being consistently decent uh, throughout the format. Okay. Um, and here there are some metagame differences. So what I did is I checked because it's hard to complain all players oh by the way uh, that may be important to notice when i talk about all players i actually excluded top players from that data set so this is all players except for the top players um but um i made this graph which basically zero is the uh, average win rate for the group so i can compare all players to the top players uh, without looking at the differences in general win rate um and I show you the deviation from the average of the win rates of each archetype. So Boros, in case of all players and top players, wins 2.5 percentage points more than uh, than the average for those players, which is quite even across all players and top players. But in case of uh, Ragnos, Golgari, and Gru, um, 
all players win by quite a lot more than top players do. So all players will win 2.2 percentage points more uh, with Ragdos than the average, but top players only 1.1. And same Golgari, 1.6 percentage points for all players and 0.7 for uh, top players. It's partially related to the fact that top players play a lot more of the top archetypes, which will uh, basically make their win rates closer to the average because they constitute a higher fraction of all the games. Uh, but because of that, it's also quite interesting that uh, in Boros, it's actually top players win even more. Um, so uh, shows you that Boros is a very strong archetype. And then uh, we see that for other archetypes, it's roughly the same levels. Obviously, except for Boros, Ragdos, Gulgari, and Gruul, all the other archetypes have a win rate below the average. Um, and in Selesnya, in case of Selesnya, it's like 1.3 percentage point below the average. Is it also like around 1.3? Uh, Demir is roughly two percentage points below the average. Uh, Orzov uh, roughly 1.5, 1.7. Uh, and then we go to Semik, which is 3.5 percentage points below the average for both groups. And Azorius, which is 5.2 percentage points below the average for all players and only 3.4 for top players. So this is something that other content creators have drawn attention to. Top players, actually Alex did, um, but top players do much better with blue decks than, um, than they do, um, uh, than the um, general population does. And especially that's the case with Azorius in here. And you will see that some blue cards in top players' hands are actually one of the top commons, which cannot be said when you look at the data for the general population. So now we can move to the uh, cards that are valued high by the top players or valued low by the not top players, whichever is uh, the causal thing that uh, remains to be seen. And how we do that, uh, just to make it simple, I'm going to focus on the pick preference because that tells you something about how people perceive the format. And pick preference is what percentage of the time do players pick the card when they see it? So in 17 lands, if you get the table with the card data and you see that uh, players saw a particular common 10,000 times and picked it 1,200 times, that will mean that they pick it 12% of the time when they see it, which is you know, not particularly high. Um, and in case of some other common, it will be 3,000, which means they pick it 30% of the time, which is pretty decent for a common, for example. Because you see it in the pack one, you will not frequently pick a common from the, uh, from the pack when you open it. Um, so that those will be passed and maybe you see it in pack pick two and maybe also that's too high to pick it. Pack pick three, you will maybe pick it, maybe not, maybe it's a 50-50. So it's really hard to get to the 30% when already for the first three picks, you will pick it half of, the, half of those um, uh, and 0% of the time uh, for the other ones. So I'm going to be looking at top, maybe middle and bottom 17lands.com uh, tiers. And the tiers are based on players that play frequently. So they have to play at least three last sets to some extent. Uh, and I think that there is a number that they need to fulfill to be qualified as uh, top bottom or middle players in terms of how many games they play. And also then it looks at the win rates and you have to exceed a certain win rate in at least two of those um, three for last formats in order to be qualified for the, uh, for the tier. So uh, players from the bottom tier have a 49% average win rate, middle tier is 55, and top tier is 59.5% uh, roughly. So when we're talking about the top tier, we're talking about people who win a lot. And also 
just to give an impression, top players are roughly 20% of all the data in 17 lands. So um, when you look at the data from uh, 17 lands, around 20% of the games that are recorded are made by those top players. And I don't know if people know that or don't, so I better specify it. Most of the players that use 17 lands are not classified in any of the tiers. So um, if you look at the general data, a, a lot of it is players that, because they didn't play enough in one of the sets or, or for some other reasons, are not classified in any of the tiers. It's um, If you're looking at top tier, you're going to reduce the sample sizes by quite a lot. And because you reduce the sample sizes by quite a lot, and we're still early in the format, you can also understand that the data we're talking about has potentially a large error. Uh, so don't take every single thing on the face value that it's written in stone. I'm pretty sure that a bunch of cards we're going to be talking about are false positives, false negatives, whatever uh, we're looking at. So take it with a grain of salt and don't try to make super sweeping statements based on that. For the briefness of the presentation, I might make the sweeping the statements, but keep in mind that not necessarily what you what you measure is close to the truth. Some of those cards might be just flukes by 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 uh, caused by smaller sample sizes. Okay. So first, we're going to look at the preference uh, of the pick of top players versus bottom players. And here we have the graph, but I'm going to explain to you what the numbers mean. This number, Imodain's recruiter, is picked 22.3 percentage points higher by the top players. What does it mean? That if, for example, if the bottom players pick Imodain's recruiter 20% of the times that they see it, this means that the top players will pick it 42.3% of the time when they see it. Um, so this number will show the difference in percentages between uh, between uh, the top players and the bottom players. And Imodin Recruiter, that's the three mana 2-2 uh, two, two, uh, that gives all your creature haste and plus one plus oh until end of turn with ETBs and has an adventure that for uh, four and a white makes two Vigilant uh, Knight tokens. This is the best uncommon. It's better than most of the rares and top players know it, and they pick it very highly because they also know that this card can be played in any color combination of the deck. Um, and bottom players still didn't realize it, and they pick it significantly uh, less. So 22.3 percentage points difference, uh, that is a lot of value that they are leaving on the, on the, on the draft uh, board. Because this card should be first picked, this card should be second pick. This card is a reason, if you see it early, to pivot into white or red because it can be played in either of the colors quite easily, especially when you have a couple of tools to be able to cast the second half. This card is just very, very good. And um, bottom players realize probably that this is a strong card. They probably just don't realize just how good that card is. And because of that, again, leave the value on the table. I had a couple of drafts in this format when I pivoted for the Imodens Recruiter, mm -hmm. and I never regretted that uh, choice so far. Second card on the list, uh, Gumdrop Poisoner. Uh, that's a uh, two and a black, uh, three, two lifelinker. Um, and it, when ETBs, uh, it gives minus X, minus X target creature, where X is the amount of life you gain this turn. Also has an adventure that at instant speed, by the way, uh, you can surprise people by that. At instant speed can produce a, a food token. This card is really strong, and I think that people who are still beginning to play Limited um, occasionally don't see just how powerful this card is. 
Like, let's start with the first thing. A three mana, three two lifelinker is already a good card. It's uh, it's really strong because lifelink is a hell of an ability. Now, this can be also played for five mana, let's say, because you can squeeze in making the food token anytime you want, really. But on turn five, if you have five lands, you can crack a food, play this as a 3-2 lifelinker that also kills a, a free toughness creature, which is an amazing rate. And you can see other scenarios that late in the game, you can crack two foods and kill Hamlet Glatton with it, because why not? Um, card is really busted. It's one of the strongest rares in the set. And bottom players don't seem to understand fully how powerful the card is, while top players just draft it at very high rate because they know that this is going to be most likely uh, one of the most powerful cards in their deck. What other cards do we have on that list? I'm not going to, to focus on the numbers, but Gumdrop Poisoner was 20 percentage point difference. The next three cards are going to be roughly 17 percentage point difference. It's Bitter Blossom. And I understand why a beginning player would be confused uh, how, just how good Bitter Blossom is. Um, it took me some time to understand the power of the card without uh, playing it before. Um, but um, now I fully understand how powerful it is. And, you know, I will also listen to content and I will know that people I trust um, in the game were, were telling the Bitter Blossom is busted. But, you know, like two, three years ago, I would look at it and I'd say, well, is that so good? Yes, that is so good. Making a 1-1 flyer every turn and just broadening the board and um, being able to kill opponent with those and block uh, to lead to longer games because you're paying one life to sometimes prevent three. Um, it's just uh, insane what this card does. If we play it on turn two, it's really hard to imagine scenarios where you're going to lose. Um, Sanguine um, asks um, that because it's an extra sheet, how big is the sample size? It doesn't matter how big the sample size for this is realistically because I'm checking the pick uh, preference. So um, it's going to be fine. If I would be looking at win rates, probably it wouldn't be large enough for me to go uh, and look at the win rates for Bitter Blossom for those top versus bottom players. But for pick rates, it should be large enough. I can check very quickly. Card data, all users, top players, rarity, mythic. It's pretty small, but because it's such a highly taken card, the difference is going to be probably significant. But because, yeah, I'm, I'm not looking at the win rate. I'm looking at how many times people saw it, around 200, and how many times they take it, around 100, uh, third, 150 or something. So you will see like 75% of the time when uh, top players see Bitter Blossom, they pick it. And then based on this data, uh, it will be roughly 60 something percent for the uh, for the lower uh, win rate players. So they still going to be picked very highly, just not as highly as the top players. This is going to be the case, and it was the case in the Lords of the Rings. Top players really pick those powerful cards very highly. And we have other cards, Witch Stalker's Frenzy, Welcome to Sweet Tooth, Gingerbread Hunter, Torch the Tower, Tough Cookie, Goblin Bombardment, Red Cup Gutter Dweller, Cut In, Agatha's Champion, Kellen the Fey Blooded, Heartflame Duelist, and Monstrous Rage. All of those cards are really strong cards that maybe don't look amazingly strong when you read them. They still look great, but maybe not as amazing as they really are on the first read. And that's maybe what confuses, confuses the uh, uh, bottom tier players, who I assume are players that um, are just starting to um, 
play limited seriously, seriously enough to make 17 lands, but are still in the learning process of uh, the ins and outs of the format, which is notoriously difficult to play and, and requires a lot of magic skills that even constructed players don't need. Because, for example, big problem of limited is that you need to be a decent deck builder. And uh, to be good in constructed, you don't even have to construct a deck. You just maybe need to optimize slightly something that was built by someone else. MBK asks, is there any evidence to suggest that this is amplified because top players are more often splashing and so are set up to take these cards mid-late more often? This is a very interesting question, but for that, I will need to really look at the data, the public data sets when they are going to be released. This is based only on those big tables that are on 17 lands. And from those, I cannot draw those kind of conclusions. I don't even know if there is a particular uh, preference in terms of splashing for the uh, for the top players. It's hard to answer also because based on the data from previous sets, it's actually the bottom tier players that splash more frequently. It's just that they do it suboptimally. That's a good choice from der Wung. It just tells that in pick, pack three, pick one, took recruiter because in, in green, black, because you can. Still, it's still probably good enough if you have uh, enough fixing, which I assume you do. But yeah, all these cards that I mentioned are extremely powerful cards and should be taken very highly. And maybe I will make one exception in Goblin Bombardment. Goblin Bombardment is a very powerful card, but I did some data that I'm not going to show today, but maybe I will try to do something about it next week in terms of secret um, secret uh, two-color cards. And Goblin Bombardment flagged as one of those secret two-color cards. That It is a great card, but it's most of its power is in uh, red-black decks. Um, and it's much stronger in red-black decks. Also okay in uh, Boros, but uh, it's pretty more, more powerful in, in, in red-black. But the rest of those cards are really strong and should be played, and top players understand it perfectly. Now we look at the preference between top players and middle players. And this is, I think, interesting one, because this shows the difference between being really the one of those top users with 60% win rate and being still a good player because those middle players are good players. They have 55% win rate in ranked um, draft, which which is a lot. Those ranked drafts are designed for the win rate to be oscillating around 50% because you are matched with people who are allegedly similar power level than you. If you're winning 55% of those games, that means that you're pretty strong. Imodane's recruiter is still number one. Uh, there is a 12.2 percentage point difference between uh, top players and middle players. <laughs> in drafting the Imodane's Recruiter. And I'm sure that middle players do know by now that um, uh, Recruiter is the best card, uh, best, best uncommon in the set. Because they are 17 lens users, which makes me think that they at least occasionally will look at the win rates of cards uh, on 17 lands. Because also um, they are probably interested in what their data produces. So I would be surprised if they don't look at it. And yet still they uh, underdraft Recruiter by 12 percentage point, which is, not, not little. And then we have a significant drop at a 10 percentage point difference uh, in Heartflame Duelist. If you don't know, Heartflame Duelist is the white free one that gives all your spells lifelink. Uh, but it also has an adventure that is a three mana deal free to something. So sort of like a solid remover that can be later used as a creature. So great, great um, Boros uh, payoff. If you're a Boros and you can get it, you, you'll be really happy to play that. Uh, so that card is probably 
not being picked by people who don't need to play the white part because this card is perfectly playable as the as standalone adventure on its own and maybe the middle players don't see that and they leave it on the table because they think, oh, you know what? I'm not Boros, I uh, I can't play the creature, so why would I pick the spell? Yes, you can probably pick the spell quite easily, even though you, of course, would prefer to be able to play both sides. But that might, you know, account for part of that difference and evaluation might account for some other part. Then we have uh, Welcome to Sweet Tooth. This card is another card that maybe is uh, its power is not apparent, but when you think about it, it's a saga. The first chapter, you make 1-1 human. Um, second chapter is uh, you make a food. And third chapter is you put X plus 1 plus 1 counters, uh, where X is your food plus 1. So if you produce this one food, it will put two counters. And if you put it on that human, it will become a 3-3. Three, three. So it is a sort of delayed 3-3 um, three, three creature that will eventually gain you three life or some other kind of ability for two mana, which is a great uh, value. But I don't think that people look at this card uh, from this perspective, and that's why they may be slightly underdrafted, even though it's more powerful than it seems. And then again, Monstrous Rage, uh, another underdrafted card. Oh, that's a good question, Urbivor. Uh, the rate on uh, Heartfling Duelist Adventure seems very bad to me. What am I missing? You're missing the fact that uh, it is also versatile. So not only you get that rate, it's a free mana deal three, which is not terrible. I mean, we'll look at one of the top commons and the, of the recent sets that we're dealing three with some minor, minor upside. This one has an upside that it also can be a creature and also that it's in the strongest color. That's, uh, that's another thing. And yes, also can go face, which is uh, something that doesn't happen frequently with those kind. And instant speed. It's, it's, it's really, really strong on its own. And the fact that you will have that ability to play it as a creature, even if you don't play white, you will be able to have that one crystal grotto and eventually play it. And if you play already a deck that has a bunch of other red spells that deal damage, you might get also a couple of points of life by playing Torch the Tower uh, when it's in play. It's really, really, um, strong and uh yeah the flexibility of all those elements push it across the border the um three mana instant is playable in some other decks that just want the free mana instant and it's not going to be the best card in your deck but it's going to be a very playable card in your deck if you're playing like blue red spells and if you're playing blue red spells you might have some treasures which will allow you to cast that um uh, that three one later in the game which will be fine for you but okay let's move on Monstrous Rage is a card that is, uh, I would say, very underestimated. I did beautiful things with that card in my um, FNM draft when it enabled my Picnic Ruiners very frequently to, to be huge double-striking, trampling threats. The fact that for one mana you get plus three, plus one, that can win combats, that can push lethal, is amazing. The fact that part of that plus three, plus one stays forever is just incredible. And I think that combat tricks are frequently underestimated how good they are. And I think that this is the part of the skill set that will push you from that middle tier to the top tier, if you're thinking about it. Um, understanding just how good uh, flexibility of the cards and, and flexibility, especially of that kind of a combat trick that can be used ultra offensively for the instant kill, but also uh, long term strategically. Um, because it protects from some kind of removal and then uh, allows you to uh, attack later. All of those things and the uh, 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 number of modes on every card, this is going to be uh, something that might be tricky initially. And that's my way, maybe it's not 
as uh, highly preferred. And again, keep in mind that when I'm saying it's not as highly preferred as the top players, it doesn't mean that um, middle players don't draft Monstrous Rage and they don't play it. It just means that they are just slightly lower on the card and top players are slightly higher. And for me, the fact that top players are slightly higher on a particular card is a signal that um, maybe that card is as good because they do win. So they do have a track record of uh, making good choices in the draft. Um, that being a bit higher on that card is the strategy. So uh, just think about how high you are on Monstrous Rage and think maybe maybe I should bump it still up, even if I'm already decently high and I want to pick it like pick 5-4. Maybe you should be happy to pick it pick 3-4 because uh, that's how good the card is. Um, and yeah, towards the tower, again, I'm sure that middle players are high on the card, just not as high as the top players. Goblin Bombardment, Kellen, the Feyblooded, Witchstalker Frenzy, bunch of those cards that were in the first uh, graph with top and bottom players. So it seems that there are similarities uh, between middle players and bottom players. Just middle players are slightly half the way between the, what the top players do and the bottom players do for those cards. But there's a couple of new things. Uh, Picnic Ruiner, that's uh, much higher um, uh, estimated by top players. Card is great and can do amazing things uh, if you have the right deck for it. Um, and if you want to play very aggressive decks with things like Monstrous Rage, that card is really, really good. Um, Gingerbread Hunter, that's also top players are higher. And if I remember correctly, the bottom players, it was not, oh no, it was on the list. So so still one of those those cards. Katin was on both lists. Edgewell In, I guess it was not in the previous list, but this on this one, it's a good card. It's a solid card but uh, top players are higher on it than uh, the middle players by quite a large chunk. It's surprising to me that the bottom players are not, but probably it's just below the monstrous rage for this graph, and that's why we don't see it. Um, Utopia Sprawl, that card is also very strong. It's, again, it's a one mana ramp spell, and that's a big difference because two mana, you play your uh, mana dork, and it's in the range of removal already, and... Uh, um, easily, easy to re respond to. Utopia Sprawl is very difficult to respond to, uh, very difficult to kill and trumps you from uh, one to three, which is, uh, especially in this format, quite important because this format is stacked with three drops. Uh, so you'll be able to deploy your uh, more dangerous threads very, very quickly. Uh, Red Cup Gutter Dweller, I think that here is just like, uh, part of the result will be that top players are higher on red because we've seen it already in the data that they do prefer those uh, high win rate archetypes and a bunch of them were red. So because they are higher on Gru, Boros and uh, Ragdos, they will just pick Red Cup Gathered Weller more frequently because they will fit their deck also more frequently because they position themselves to be able to uh, draft Red Cup Gathered Weller. And by the way, this, this is something that will be true for all the red cards on that list. Part of it is because top players are just drafting with preference towards drafting red. And we end up with Embrith Veteran. Um, Funderwunk calculated, and uh, out of 15 cards in my graph, 11 were red. So, yeah. Um, preference towards the color is also something very, uh, very important. Um, now, when we look at the preference middle versus bottom, and here there are two cards that are absolutely outliers in terms of how much more do middle players prefer those cards than the bottom players. And it's Gumdrop Poisoner and Bitter Blossom, two cards that we already mentioned. Around 17 percentage points, 16 percentage points difference in preference between middle and bottom players. And then we have a bunch of cards that are between 10 and 6. 
And that includes everything that we already mentioned. So Recruiter, Witchstalker Frenzy, Agatha's Champion, Gingerbread Hunter. Oh, actually, Godric Chuck Cloak Reveler is something that we didn't mention, but that's another red card. Uh, Welcome to Sweet Tooth, uh, Tough Cookie, Agatha's Soul Cauldron. That's probably based on like, another small small sample size, but um, we see that uh, mythic uh, artifact. Mosswood Dread Knight, Realm Scorcher, Hellkite, Huntsman Redemption, Candy Grapple, and Lord Skitter Sewer King. All of those cards, really strong cards. And uh, middle players, they do seem to know which cards are good, just maybe miss the preference aspect of their drafting uh, in terms of the, the, the thing that top players have. Uh, top players position themselves to be able to draft the most powerful color pairs by picking the good first pick that keeps them open to those colors. Um, and maybe uh, the middle tier players, they try to be too adherent to drafting the hard way philosophy and uh, basically try to stay open and pick the best cards without looking at the context of the set. And I think that this costs uh, them some win rate uh, equity. Keep in mind, of course, that the difference might be as simple as uh, top players just play the games better and have a better plan during the games, something that my data will never ca capture. But because we do see those differences with some cards, I think that that's not completely the case. And now we have the reverse. Which cards do... Um, oh, that should be saying top versus bottom, but by the way. Uh, which cards do... Um, bottom players prefer over uh, the top players. And here we have a very good collection of interesting rares that look cute, but just don't do their job sufficiently. And the card that the bottom players prefer the most over the top players is the Moonshaker Cavalry. The uh, eight mana, six, six flyer gives your creatures plus six, plus six and flying until end of turn. But eight mana, including three white, that's quite a um, that's quite a lot. Um, and because of that, top players will very rarely play the card, and they will occasionally do. But because of the fact that they won't play it more frequently, they will not uh, uh, they will not uh, pick it uh, a large percentage of the time. Ah, force of wheel, Sherkovitz. You said top players are good, also good deck builders. I can make good choices and pick good cards, and gameplay is sound but how can I get better at building the winner deck? <laughs> the long story is uh, takes experience. Um, I would say best way of uh, becoming a better deck builder is practicing on generated sealed pools and consulting them with someone that you know is a good deck builder and then looking at differences uh, that you're making. Because often it's going to be, and also like build your own decks and, um, and ask people what card do you think are missing in those decks and then think if you pass those cards during the draft. Because I think that frequently what you will do is you're drafting a deck and you're picking a better card in terms of win rate or strength, but actually another pick was a better pick in that particular draft uh, because the card that you passed maybe was weaker but fulfilled a very key role in, uh, in your deck. So this is like switching between I build the deck of most powerful cards to I build a deck that has strong cards, but also has a synergy equity that will let me win the games because uh, by picking a card that has maybe like a one percentage point uh, lower win rate, but plays better with my other cards. So that will make them win more. And, 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 and uh, this way uh, you're going to win more games. So it's that mentality of trying to figure out, um, of trying to figure out 
should I pick the strongest card in the pack or should I pick the different card because my deck needs that function that this card provides? And that's very often difficult, especially like prioritizing fixing, for instance, uh, is uh, something that people notoriously postpone. And uh, if you plan it ahead and you think about it, you very often end up in the situation, look, I have my fixing, now I can focus on picking those powerful cards and you can do that in pack three. While frequently, if you if you pick the strong cards first and then you don't have fixing, then you have to either prioritize fixing in pack three and lose equity of those powerful cards uh, later or, um, or skip fixing and then you have a deck that is inconsistent. That, that's like a, one example of that, what can happen. Uh, there was another question. Do these cards get played? Industrial strength, uh, strength asks, do these cards get played? It seems a decent percentage of this pick preference could be just rare drafting occurs at a higher rate among lower players. It's possible, it's possible. But you know, uh, uh, I don't think it's exclusive because I also see Stroke of Midnight here, which is, we're gonna get there. I think that's a classic trap for, um, uh, for beginner players in this format. The Rosemary Tea uh, uh, has words of wisdom that should be repeated. Recruiter is a better crater hoof. And that is true. It is a better crater hoof because it can be split in two uh, and then played earlier. I think that I will have to make a Twitter uh, thread about it, how much more difficult it is to get to eight mana than it is to get to five mana because it's a big, big difference in terms of how many turns on average you're going to make uh, to get to that moment, especially in best of one. So yeah, um, I'm going to go through the list of these cards because I think all of them are not that interesting to talk about them individually, but we have Moonshaker, Cavalry, Asinine Antics, Rankle's Pranks, Lord Skitter's Blessing, Cruel Somnophage, Ristic Study, Hilda of the Icy Crown, A Tale for the Ages, Ariette of Charmed Apple, Doubling Season, Spectre of Mortality, Parallel Lives, Stroke of Midnight, the card that I'm going to focus on, Besiege the Mirror, and Imodane the Pyrohammer. And I think a bunch of those cards Rare drafted. I think that maybe cavalry for people that play brawl, they want to have a copy of it, so they pick it. Ristic study because I don't know brawl, um, doubling season. That's also like a card that is worth a lot of money, and I think that cards that are worth a lot of money uh, in uh, in paper are going to have a higher appeal to be picked uh, because they might be playable for some reason. I don't know. But lots of those cards are actually more expensive because they are played in commander, and there is no commander in the arena, so that sort of boggles me but maybe people hope that Commander is going to be brought to Arena for some reason. Um, and there's like Besiege the Mirror, which is a card that will be playable in many formats, I'm sure. That, so that's a solid rare drafting pick. But there's also a bunch of cards that I see players, a particular type of a player, loving those cards. And Asinine Antics is one of them. Uh, Lord Skitter's Blessing is the other one. Um, cards that promise quite a lot because they read interestingly, but in the end, they usually deliver short. Like Lord Skitter's Blessing is a sort of like one mana cheaper Phyrexian Arena that brings a plus one, plus one aura with it. And if my opponent really hates me drawing those extra cards, they can easily kill my creature with aura and stop Lord Skitter's Blessing from working. If they don't mind, they will actually not do anything with my... Uh, with, with my aura creature and I will kill myself by damage from the drawing extra cards. So that card is problematic because if the opponent's deck is well built, they can decide whether I draw the cards or whether I not, and they will do it. I can guarantee you without my well-being in mind, they will actually do it actively to make me miserable. And Asinine Antics, that looks like a Wrath, but it's not a Wrath. Uh, Rankle Sprang looks like a Wrath, but it's not a Wrath. Uh, these cards also have like 
pretty low win rates and um, uh, and probably for a good reason. And uh, it seems like that those bottom players again should be saying should should be saying bot bottom here. Um, they do love it. Um, and then we have Stroke of Midnight, which is not the only non-rare card on that list. And it's a bad removal, unfortunately. It looks like maybe it's going to be playable. It's a three mana instant um, that uh, kills something and uh, its controller gets a 1-1 one -one human token, which doesn't seem like a lot, especially when you you know think of your perfect scenarios and say, oh, I'm going to only kill Hamlet Gluttons with that. The reality is that with some decks, you're going to be have to killing a 3-3 or a 2-2 even with that card. And, you know, replacing a 2-2 with a 1-1, that's not like an amazing deal that is worth three mana. And that's unfortunately the problem with that card. Uh, it's going to be amazing when you kill this Hamlet Glutton, but that's going to be probably like a, some small percentage of, uh, of the time. Um, stroke is probably much worse because you can uh, bargain away uh, the human that you get for that. So yeah, would be for. I think that's uh, it. Would be better if that would not be the case. Sanguine is asking, have we seen a good version of those cards ever that give a token? But there were a couple of good cards that give someone a token, but usually the token had like an issue with it. But it was not like a removal spell. I think that that basically what they should do is um, they they give a token that is some sort of a body, but it's actually a burden that cannot block or something. Because if it can block that's going to be always a pretty bad deal. So these are the differences between the top and the bottom. And now we're looking at the actual difference cards that are different between uh, top and middle. And we'll see some of those ca same cards, actually. Uh, Agatha Soul Cauldron is the top uh, card that uh, middle tier players love. I mean, honestly, I did propose a couple of combos with Agatha's Cauldron and I think is good. I think that the, the card is can be pretty decent in uh, black green decks. Uh, that will include Ginger Brute in some shape or form, and that's the sort of mini combo. You exile Ginger Brute with the Soul Cauldron, and then you can give unblockability to um, to your big threats, and that can end the game quite quickly. But it's not like a super uh, high pick for me in terms of the draft. I mean, I would love to have it somewhere later, which is the tragedy of the Mythic Rares in general, that um, the poor ones... Uh, that might be an interesting build around, but you don't want to first pick it. These cards, you will never see late. So therefore you will never be able to build around them because of their rarity. And Agatha Soul Cauldron is a super strong card for Constructed. Uh, that's why it's going to be probably picked by those middle tier players because they want to build their decks. We see Lord Skitter's Blessing again in second place this time. Uh, and we see Cruel Somnophage, uh, the Lurgoy version of this um, set again. Uh, also, we see Talion the Kindly Lord that is picked by the middle players higher. Um, another card I made a Twitter thread about. Uh, I guess that this shows also a bit of preference to play Demir by the middle players. And I think that those preferences are quite important uh, to take into account because there are some color combinations that are quite popular, uh, always independent of the power level, and Demir is one of them. Uh, we have Rankle's Prank, Hilda of the Icy Crown, like in the previous uh, Besiege the Mirror, Ariette of the Charmed Apple, Imodane the Pyrohammer. These are all, when you think about it, the Icy Crown, H Hilda of the Icy Crown, uh, Ariette, Imodane, these are all build around cards. And top players, whether you love it or not, um, look like they're very careful on when to uh, pick to play some kind of a build around. 
And there is a reason to that. Build arounds are hard. They don't come together. You end up with an absolute train wreck of a deck. Um, I'm not going to tell you not to play them because uh, that would be cruel. And I don't think it's a good idea not to play the build arounds. I think it's a good idea to understand that when you play build around decks, you are going to uh, potentially lose some of them. But uh, I often play build arounds because I just find them fun. And I take the I take the L's, and I love it when it comes together and I win. But uh, I I do know that build arounds are risky, uh, especially when you first pick it. I actually first picked Hilda in my last draft, but I had to abandon uh, uh, blue white like middle of the draft because there was just nothing going on with that, and that's sad for that card because it would be great if I could get pick five when I know that there were some cards that were passed around that were good with Hilda. And unfortunately, because it's a mythic, it will never happen. Mm, but okay, um, we also see one card that I maybe want to mention, back for seconds. Not a big difference, 6.5 percentage points, but this card has pretty bad numbers in this set. I don't know exactly why, because it looks powerful, and I haven't got the chance to play with it really. Um, so I will need to investigate and see what exactly doesn't work with that card. But it has pretty bad numbers and top players do know it. And I think that they started avoiding it. Uh, and the difference between middle and the bottom, Moonshaker, Cavalry, Rhystic Study, S9 Antics, Rankle's Plank, Spectre of Mortality, Necropotence, Doubling Season, all those kind of cards that are built around, but even like not good build arounds. Virtue of Strength, Chancellor of Tales, uh, Cruel Son of Age, Hilda, Lord Skitter's Blessing, all the same things that we've seen before, and then Likeness Looter. Um, it's just that those cards are appealing by some reason. The lower your win rate, the more it's appealing to play them for some reason. Because I don't think that, except for you know maybe Necropotence, Doubling Season, and Moonshaker Recovery and Rhystic Study, I think all the other ones are picked as a sort of build-arounds. Because why do we see the same cards? Especially, you know, why do we see that the consistently uh, uh, asinine antics is on top of those lists? I think that the only explanation is that people really think that the card is strong when it isn't. It's a problem of uh, evaluation. Likeness Luther is nice, but Flippagoon, Likeness Luther has a problem of being a one toughness creature that doesn't introduce anything to the battlefield. And Flick Coin and Rat Out are real cards. And especially, you know, maybe a player in the bottom tier that plays somewhere in silver gold can get away with that because they will not face so many uh, flick coins and uh, rat outs. But if you're playing like diamond to mythic, you're going to encounter a lot of those cards and likeness looter is a problem in this case. Uh, the wine toughness is a problem. And yeah, likeness looter doesn't give you anything in, uh, uh, in advance. Maybe if you can engineer turns when you can just play it and turn it very quickly, then uh, then it's okay. But on the other hand, like Demir is just generally not that great. It's okay, but it's not great. So I don't know if it's worth playing a card that you have to really go out of your way to make sure that it works uh, rather than rather than uh, anything else. Yeah, uh, three one mice have the same problem that this card is now being hosed a lot. Still worth playing in some decks, I think, but uh, uh, I would be careful with that. Yeah, Fugu Fiend. Um, it's fine, but not something you want to take in the first like three, five picks. And the problem, of course, is that you will not see it in pick six very frequently. That's the tragedy of the rares. 
I really have to make a thread about it because I think that's an interesting topic. And that was it for the pick difference. Uh, let's look at the differences in the win rates between those uh, tiers. I think that that's where you will see some pretty interesting things. First, we will look at the win rate difference between top and bottom. And again, this is in percentage points. So if the difference in ice out uh, between top and bottom is 14 percentage points, it means that if the bottom tier players have a 50%, then the top tier players have 64. Yeah, you just add that number. And these are the top 15 cards uh, that have uh, the highest difference between top and bottom players. Mind you, this is not for all cards in the set. Only roughly half of the cards qualified for that because they had a big enough sample size for 17 lines to assign them a win rate in, in each tier. So most of those cards that we're looking will be commons and uncommons. There are not many rares that fulfill those criteria, but there are some. But the biggest difference, uh, win rate difference cards um, between top and the bottom tier is Ice Out, the three mana counter spell that can bargain uh, to cost only two. Uh, and there's 14 percentage points difference between the uh, between the win rate uh, of top players and bottom players with this, with this card. Game in hand win rate, by the way. And the second one is Living Lectern, the 04 wall uh, for one and a blue. That can be sacrificed to make a young hero roll, uh, which was a bit of a surprise. Also 14% by the percentage points uh, difference, by the way. Then we see Shrouded Shepherd. That's a white 2 2 for 2 that gives plus 2 plus 2 to something when it ETBs. And it has an adventure that for one and a black can give minus one, minus one to, every, uh, to uh, every creature opponent controls. Um, so a bit of surprise that actually top players seem to be doing pretty much better with, um, with blue. Um, and you will see that later, it seems like top players, I'd actually you saw it in the previous graph, top players don't lose that much with blue deck as, as the bottom tier players, which means that there is a recipe of playing decent blue decks. I'm not saying that blue is the best color. I think I'll leave that statement to the four uh, in the, within the next, my bet, five days uh, to hear that blue is busted. But I think that it's definitely far from being unplayable and there are good decks. They just might, um, they just might need to be built differently than the intuition tells us. And um, I think that Ice Out is part of why this, these decks can be good if you draft them correctly. And you have to be, of course, in the pod where that blue is flowing freely. And then Ice Out is a universal answer to, some, to everything and the potential to uh, bargain something away that you want to bargain away, um, like the two mana enchantment that you sack and draw three cards, hatching plants. Um, I think that it's pretty strong uh, in that combination. Um, then we have uh, Troy and the Gutsy Explorer, 13.6 um, percentage point difference in win rate. Um, that card, probably not on its own power, but on the fact that uh, top players will be able to build much better version of those uh, ramp decks than uh, bottom tier players, because these are more difficult to make synergistic and make um, powerful um, than, let's say, your run-of-the-mill aggro. Uh, Savior of the Sleeping, big difference in the win rate, and uh, there will be plenty of other uh, appearances of that card. So that's the two and a white, uh, two, three vigilance creature. When enchantment uh, you control goes into graveyard, uh, you can put a plus one, plus one counter on it. And I think that the difference here is because bottom tier players will just play it as a two, three vigilance creature 
with potentially small upside at some stage of the game, while top players will play it in a deck that where this card is actively good. And I think that this is the big difference. We have Up the Beanstalk, another build around that is powerful but tricky to um, to do. Archive Dragon, it's a 6-mana 4-6 flyer, which makes it tricky to play because you need to survive to that time. And top players will do better in decks with Archive Dragon because they control is just more difficult to survive because you have so many decisions that are quite important and top players will be capable of making those right decisions more frequently, while the bottom's not. And then we have um, Welcome to Sweet Tooth. We talked about the card. Frolicking Familiar, another card that offers quite a lot of choice and uh, interesting uh, play patterns. That's the Flying Otter. Uh, that can also ping for one as an adventure. Archon's Glory, another, just to prove the point that not only control decks are difficult in gameplay and, and constructing plans, Archon Glory as a combat trick offers a lot of decisions because you need to think, do I want to play it to save my creature? Because later maybe I can bargain away my uh, princess takes flight and that's very important for me and may win me the game. But I can save my 2-2 right now and maybe push enough damage that I will not even need the princess takes flight. Uh, do I bargain something away to give lifelink or not? Do I play it pre-combat to attack with flying or pre-blocks to attack with flying and avoid blockers? Uh, do I use it defensively? So it is an aggro card, but it offers so much choice. And it's not surprising that this particular card from all the aggro cards is on that list because you need to think uh, a couple of turns ahead in order to play it. And top players will do that. Uh, bottom players, not necessarily. That's why we see the 12.5% difference in win, win rate. Uh, Dragon Mantle, that's probably also uh, like a question of putting it in your deck or not. Card will be much better if you have some kind of evasive threats. And if you don't, it might be just not good enough. It's like one mana cycling. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that top players will put it in the right deck more frequently than not. Uh, Shrey of Numbering Depths, I think that here... It is the equity of that card being splashed more often in the um, uh, by the top players and not played in the strict uh, white-blue deck, which uh, uh, might create some of the difference. We have Glass Casket, uh, Phones Bane Troll, and Gadwick's first duel. No, 12 percentage point difference. It's not that much. Now for the cards that have the smallest difference between the top and the bottom players. And um, here we have a couple of groups of cards. Uh, first, we have cards that are just not working for the top players. And I think that here we have Dream Spoilers, when the difference between top and bottom players is just 3.8 percentage points, which is pretty little. Um, Rhyme for Reindeer, the 3-4 that uh, taps a creature when something when enchantment ATBs. Um, that card only 5.1%. I think that's mainly because it doesn't work very well for the, uh, for the top players. Uh, Tempest Heart, I think, will be on that list, um, and potentially Curiosity, um, and potentially Obira. I think that those decks are just not working so great for the top players uh, in this format. Um, also, we will have some cards that probably have smaller delta because they are just uh, uh, generally strong. And here we have like Lord Skitter, Sewer King. The card is just so strong and straightforward in what it does that um, it's going to be powerful, whatever your ability level and whatever your experience in drafting is. And Royal Treatment and that card and Candy Grapple, the, all these cards are just very powerful on their own, so you don't need to do much. Um, they will let you win the games uh, if you play them uh, right time. And then we have a couple of cards that can go either way. I'm thinking about Sir Armand, the Redeemer, maybe. Um, 
it has some amount of power, but it also it can be pretty clunky at some stage. The point is that the car does not offer much choice. Average gap between top and bottom is 10 percentage points. So here we're looking at um, uh, decreasing it by 50 percent or so uh, in terms of the size of the gap. Um, we have things like Howling Gale Fang that um, is just a for mana four four that occasionally will have haste and always has vigilance. I think that this card just basically is very flat in terms of how you play it, and that's why we see it on that list. In terms of the differences in win rate between top and middle players, and here the average will be around five percentage point. Um, I think that the two cards that are most um, impressive in terms of the difference is Gadwick's first duel and Tenacious Tome Seeker. And both of those cards are blue, showing that um, top players do way better with blue, and that, that you can see from that list you have uh, not only this, you have uh, Living Lectern, you have Frolicking Familiar, Archive Dragon, Aquatic Alchemist, uh, Mocking Sprite, um, Johan, which is partially blue, Ice Out, uh, all those cards are blue. So like more than a half of this list uh, of cards are blue cards, uh, just showing that there is a um, there is a trend of uh, top players being better in playing blue. Um, but Gadwick's first duel requires a certain setup. First of all, you need to have a decent target for the curse. Second, you need to play it in such a way that you have the possibility of utilizing the third chapter well. And the third chapter, I remind you, is you copy. And whenever next time you cast a, a spell that costs three or less, you can copy it and choose new targets for the copy. Now, those two things require quite a lot of careful thinking about where to play it because you don't want to play it too early because then you care something bad. Uh, you don't want to um, play it when you don't have a target for curse. You don't want to play it when you will not have that free mana spell that you can cast at certain uh, moment. So um, yeah, I think that um, uh, top players will be able to position it better. And yes, it is one of the weakest uh, uncommons in the set, but uh, in general, top players will have a higher win rate with blue, so they might make Gadwick into just about passable. Other card, we see Neva Stock by Nightmares, uh, still also a low win rate card, but uh, top players will be able to position it slightly better. We have another Saga in the Witch's Vanity with 6.5% win rate, but because there is only 5% win rate, 5 percentage point win rate difference between top and middle, I don't think that we have a credible uh, authority to, to, to say that those differences are much higher than the average, which is vanity on the other hand, it is a great card. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, still good players can squeeze out much more from that because they can play it in the right time. In terms of the cards where there are smallest difference between top and the middle players, we again have Dream Spoilers and Obira Dreaming Duelist and Snare Master Sprite. Uh, all those things were there already when looking at top versus bottom players. Uh, I just think that this format does not is not conducive of playing uh, blue-white in high tables. This is maybe something I should maybe draw more attention to. Um, top players will frequently play in Mythic, and probably there is a good case to be had that Fairy deck is not great against good players because it's easy to uh, cripple, it's easy to uh, make sure that uh, you are going to be in a better position if you know what you're doing. So I'm pretty sure that Fairy deck will have a much higher win rate against a new player than against a veteran. 
even if they both play the same kind of deck because the veteran will clearly quickly find a good game plan against the fairies and uh, abuse it and because of that maybe the win rate of those demir decks in high tables is going to be uh, slightly lower um, other cards that we see quite flat are the cards that I think are flat on the uh, power level. Graceful Takedown, I mean, just like basically your creatures deal damage to opponent creature. Nothing fancy about it, but pretty strong, so win rate is very similar. Uh, Lord Skitter's Butcher and Lord Skitter and Hamlet Zlatan are strong cards. Totentanz is a strong card. Grand Bolt Guest is a good synergy card. Uh, all of them have a very similar win rate between those tiers. Um, we have Curiosity that has similar Sweet Tooth Witch, uh, also a powerful card. Um, I think that uh, all of those are just defending themselves on their own power and uh, they don't have a big difference because of that. Um, in terms of middle and bottom win rate differences, I think that this is an interesting part because if you are a starting player, you probably want to look at what middle players are doing differently than you because that's the next level you're aspiring to. It might be sometimes even a mistake to focus on the top players and their gameplay because in order for them to have that good gameplay, they have to go through particular levels of skill development and you can't just jump from where you are right now into uh, where they are. You probably need to go step by step, and figure out things. doesn't mean it will take long. It will take depending on how much effort you put in, but probably to conceptualize a certain thing that top players know you need to accrue certain heuristics from other levels. Otherwise, it will become too much of a jump um, to go straight from uh, oh, I played my first draft into, oh, that's why Sam Black is doing those loop-de-loops. You need to probably gather a bunch of things in, in between. Um, but the biggest difference card, Savior of the Sleeping, I am pretty convinced, although I can't prove it really, that bottom players just play it too frequently because they think that 2-3 Vigilance is just good on rate, while um, middle players will play it in decks that can utilize the synergy and make it at least into a 3-4, if not more, where the card actually can be decent. Um, Dragon Mantle, uh, again, card that requires a certain deck. You don't want to play it in any deck. You want evasive threats, maybe trampling threats, maybe flying, maybe whatever, menace, uh, all kinds of those things. If you don't have it, it just becomes not much. It just becomes a one red to cycle it, which is not great. What do we have? Up the Beanstalk, tricky build around that uh, will not always work. I think that the trouble of Up the Beanstalk with the bottom players is that they think that blue-green is the archetype when you want to cast spells five uh, with cost five or greater. But in fact, it's not. Uh, I think, in fact, it's uh, Gruul and uh, Golgari that are the best color pairs for playing up to Beanstalk. And maybe that's why they fail. They play it uh, too frequently in the, uh, in the uh, Civic. Picklock Prankster, tricky card, because the adventure part uh, requires certain deck building. And maybe um, uh, the bottom tier players do not know how many copies of instant sorceries and, and fa fairies you should have for that card to be actively good. Um, what else do we have there? Um, Lord Skitter's Butcher is a bit of a surprise, but it's a free option card. Maybe it's hard for those players to pick the right option at the right time. Maybe they draw when they should make a rat, or maybe they give menace when they should have drawn, or something like that. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, 
Trojan, as I said, a tricky card to build around. Uh, also, the looter is always tricky for young uh, for uh, earlier players because uh, you need to figure out what to loot away and how to do it. And uh, I guess that comes with experience to do exactly uh, the right loots. And they also have Share of, num of Numbing Depths. This card, I think, is much better as a splash in other colors than the white-blue card, but I can see that the uh, bottom-tier players will play it more frequently as a uh, strictly blue-white card. Oh, Bob Jackson. Um, is crediting me with part of their one grand win in the arena open. I will not take any credit, but um, uh, but if my advice with the using the Ariad's tempting apple was useful, then I'm super happy about it. Um, uh, they just said, uh, both my draft decks played Ariad's tempting apple main. You said you can just play it at any point and you were right. I'm glad that I was right. And I'm super happy for you for winning 1K. I know how amazing it feels when you uh, when you win a four-digit um, prize in Magic that doesn't come frequently, so I'm super happy that you did it. Okay, let's move uh, to the cards where we have the smallest differences between the middle and the bottom players. Um, weirdly, it's Johan Apprentice Sorcerer, which I would assume is actually a tricky card to play, so I can't explain that very well. I don't know. Um, and honestly, I don't see that much of a trend, except for the fact that which is vanity has a small difference. Um, I think that that maybe has something to do with middle players having a low win rate for that card compared to uh, anything because we saw that on the high difference uh, between middle and top players. So uh, there is a potential situation where there's just variance on how this card has a win rate in, in, in the middle tier group. We're talking about small sample sizes, so that might be a, that might be something. Um, apart from that, honestly, there is a bunch of, bunch of cards that are quasi-random um, that I don't understand why they are there. Vampiric Rites, Callous Cellsword are sort of on theme of the Steel and Sack. Uh, maybe the middle tier players are trying to force it too frequently and, uh, and uh, it's more cute than good. And because of that, they have low win rates with those cards, uh, I would be guessing. Um, apart from that, hard to say what's going on in here and not all the data must make sense, especially when uh, we're basing it on relatively small sample sizes and especially bottom tier is smallish. All right, so that brings us to the end of looking at the win rate differences. And now I wanted to talk about something that I've observed and that may be a spoiler for the upcoming episode. I don't know if they're gonna be next week or in two weeks or in three weeks. But I definitely want to look into the speed of the game and um, and length of the game. Um, and I was just exploring the data, as one does in their spare time. And I decided to try to get the first impression of the um, of the cards of the decks that want to play longer games in this format because it is a relatively fast format in terms of the game duration. But um, game duration does not give you full information. Like for example, one as Funderwunk in the chat is mentioning was the fastest format so far. But I think that the speed of uh, Firexia Obi Wan is partially caused not by the fact that the format was so fast, but by the fact that decks were very disproportionately paired. So uh, you had those games that um, you overrun your opponent quite easily, and I think that was the case in one because. I see that 
a lot of games when the opponent was on the draw ended um, very quickly with their win, for example, which wouldn't make sense if the format was fast, that uh, you will be overpowering people on the draw. That would be the play advantage in one was smaller than you would expect from uh, how fast the format was. And that, to me, suggests that it was caused not by that intrinsic speed of the format, but because the decks were badly matched and 17 lens users were having just way better decks and they were winning because they didn't try to win with Toxic, they tried to win with damage and they played more Gru and things like that. Um, so I want to go deeper into the game speed, but before I get the proper data, because I cannot analyze it with the data that we currently have, I decided to take a look at what is the game duration um, in this set and is there any trend with the cards. Now, I don't have the game duration data because that will only come out when the public data sets are going to be available and they are still not. So the only way of me to estimate the game duration was to look at the what is the percentage of the games that a given card was drawn in. And the rationale behind it is that if the game is longer, I will have a higher percentage chance of drawing a particular card because I will see more cards and because I will see more cards, I will uh, draw more cards. Um, and then I tried to maybe see if there is any trend with the win rate. So uh, on this axis, we have the win rate. So this is graph triplets, for example, uh, win rate of over 70%. Um, and uh, you drew it in 25% of the games you played. By drew it, I mean not having any opening hand, but drawing it later in the game. Um, and here we have some card that um, has a win rate of 54 and um, still, um, still, uh, this is all, by the way, this is the data for the top players only. Uh, has a winner of 54 and still you draw it around 24% of the time. And But some cards you drew like 19% of the time and some cards you drew 30, almost 31% of the time. Uh, so this means that these, these, these cards that were only seen like 20% of the time were in the very fast games when people just didn't have time to draw many cards. So obviously you have a lower probability of drawing that. Um, and these cards um, were drawn much more frequently. So potentially the games that those cards were played in uh, were lasting longer because people drew more cards. And uh, if you draw more cards, the game has to last longer. Ta-da. And especially I was interested in the fact that um, there seems to be a big gap between uh, this cluster and, and, and the whole bunch. And there seems to be a smaller, but still some gap between this cluster and, and the rest of the cards. So I wanted to see what are those cards. So first of all, um, the cards in this uh, top cluster, the ones that uh, are in longer games, if you look at the list, Ice Out, Tenacious Tome Seeker, Johan Stopgout, Fred Bind Clique, Johan Apprentice Sorcerer, Peluna's Gatekeeper, Into the Fey Court, Quick Study, Slide of Hand Bitter Chill, Aquatic Alchemist, Archive Dragon, Diminisher Witch, Hatching, Hatching Plants, Frolicking Familiar, Mocking Sprite. Now, these are all blue. And then, of course, it struck me that blue also has card draw, which will, of course, mean that you draw more cards, not because the game is longer, but because you have a card draw. So um, at least part of that effect is because it's in the color that has card draw, which is sort of a boring find. But then I started thinking, and then I said, yeah, but it does not explain everything. If it was all because of card draw, I would expect all those blue cards being maybe at the same level. So. Uh, when we see Ice Out was drawn 31% of the time, uh, Johan was drawn 30% of the time, 
bitter chill 29. And then there is like a big cluster of cars that are like 28.7, 28.6. And it continues actually with that trend uh, at around the same level or some other blue cards. So what it made me think is that this 28.7 is the baseline. Uh, it will be still higher than, um, higher than other things. And it's based on the fact that you just draw many cards from the uh, quick study and from the, uh, uh, from the uh, into the fake court. But that means that these cards are potentially prolonging the game. And when I looked at them, I mean, they look like one, one of them is even called stopgap. I mean, you would expect that the card with the stopgap in the name will make the games last longer. Ice out, I mean, that also sounds like a card that will make the game last longer. And when you look at it, thread bind click that can kill something and then create a good blocker that will prolong the games. Tenacious Tome Seeker will find you another spell that might do something. Maybe even Johan's stopgap, so you can cast it again and um, uh, and make the game last longer. So I think at least at least the first ten of those cards on the list: Ice Out, the Tome Seeker, Stopgap, Johan himself, Threadbind Click, Beluna's Gatekeeper, Into the Fake Court, Quick Study. All those cards are sort of the cards that make will make the games last longer. Um, and um, some of those cards are just you draw more of them because they are played in the color that has a lot of card draw and and, and that's it. Um, but I think that especially looking at the fact that the top players had much better results in blue than uh, other groups, I would say look at those cards as a sort of basis of your blue control deck, uh, of what you need in those decks. Uh, all cards on those lists are important for blue and you know especially Ice Out turns out to be like the key pivotal card for um, for the blue decks uh, and the reason why top players are not having atrocious results with uh, with blue decks uh, but uh, merely underwhelming which is important because if you're going to play uh, sometimes you will just have to play blue and you need to know which cards are absolutely key for that well Funderwung, there is a problem with the so Funderwung says if it was all due to card draw i think you'd expect hatching plans to be higher on the list but would you because it's hatching plans that's making the drawing of the cards and it drawing cards should not impact how frequently you draw it. It's the other card draw, if anything, because you will, unless you have two hatching plans, you will never draw your hatching plans through the hatching plans. You will draw all the other cards through the hatching plans. That's that's at least my rationale behind it. Uh, Kenshin's uh, stream has an excellent question. Do they make the game last longer by preventing oneself from winning faster if we played other cards? I'm not sure if the logic behind it is making the cards good or worse. This is something that I will have to answer with a proper data set. And this one was just an exploratory kind of venture into that uh, area. Um, I did it for some other formats when I looked at cards and I called some of them speed bumps. And these are the cards that are making the game last longer, but in the end, you're just going to lose. Uh, it just will take longer. And some of them were, um, uh, were control cards where they make the game longer, but also make you win more. So I will have to test it, but I can't test it with this data set. I can only test it when I have the proper game length data. We also have the cards that make the games last shorter. And here we have uh, Tattered Ratter, Harriet Spearguard, Knowing Crescendo, Ash Party Crusher, Belligerent, oh sorry, <clears throat> Belligerent of the Ball, Armory Mice, Embrith Veteran, Slumbering Keepguard, Grand Bull Guest, 
Ginger Brute, Totten Tans, and Gallant Pie Wielder. All of them super aggressive card, none of them more expensive than three mana, a bunch of them one drops. We have Hurried Spirit Guard, uh, we have uh, Embreath Veteran, we have Slumbering Keep Guard, uh, Ginger Brute, these are all one drops. Grand Bull Guest, Armory Mice, Ash, um, two drops that have um, Celebration, um, Gallant Pie Wielder, potential double striker, which can lead to some situations when you do a lot of damage in one turn. Knowing Crescendo, a card that is really good when you have like a bunch of one drops in your deck and a bunch of rat generators because you can push a tremendous amount of damage at some stage. If you don't have the recruiter, of course, it's always better to have a recruiter in your deck. But if you don't, you don't. Funnily enough, Recruiter is not on that list because Recruiter does have this kind of like, I want the game to last a bit longer uh, vibe because then you can cast both sides of the card and then eventually win. But all of those cards show you what would be the backbone of the potential super aggressive deck. And I'm not even talking about aggro. I'm talking about super aggro. I'm talking about this kind of aggro that will play knowing Crescendo. Knowing Crescendo is a three mana instant that gives plus two plus O to all your creatures. And whenever a creature dies, a non-token creature dies on the turn, you make a rat. So you basically swing with five creature, play knowing Crescendo and threaten the 15 damage. Um, uh, some of those creatures will be blocked, but they will die and they will turn into rats, blah, blah, blah. So this is like the baseline of this like super ultra aggressive. And you can see that there are maybe two flavors of it. One that is more centered on Ash and, and, and Celebration and Armory Mice, and one that is more centered on Totentans and um, uh, a bunch of uh, rat synergies. Uh, and red is the sort of like center of those uh, both archetypes. And um, those decks do exist. That They are not like super winning, but um, sometimes you will just be in the seat where this is the best strategy to do. When you want to trim to 16 lands, maybe even 15, and put tons of one and two drops, and then knowing Crescendo as your top end, uh, this might happen. And I think that you know those decks are not abysmal because those cards have decent win rates uh, in general. So uh, think about those cards if you will ever want to build this kind of ultra-aggressive aggro. Oh, and that's all we have for today. So we went through cards that are picked by the top players higher than by uh, other groups of players. We looked at the cards that top players can utilize better and have a higher win rate with. Uh, and we looked at maybe some how to use data to figure out speed of certain cards and, and how can we think about deck building choices based on those. Hopefully that was useful for you. As useful as... Um, um, as useful as the Ariad's Tempting Apple advice was for Bob Jackson, uh, and uh, they can now swim in the K $1,000 bills if, if, if they choose to do so. Uh, okay, so that will end. I would like to thank 17 Lance team because without them, there wouldn't be magic numbers because where would they get numbers from? So thanks to them, and please do support them. I'd like to thank Fake Jake Brown, who is my guardian angel in terms of releasing the podcast and the uh, uh, releasing the stream in a podcast form and i would like to thank while we're at it assesco and mana junkie uh, for the music that we use in the podcast apart from that big thanks to uh, mtga zone and big thanks to my new patrons uh, gregorado and reese powell and also uh, mario and all the other patrons who are not new but nonetheless very much appreciated and with that see you next week